Hi, we're Josh and Arielle Wamsley, owners of Green Valley Tree LLC, based in North Windham. We're proud to sponsor Connecticut East this week and to serve the communities of Windham and New London counties with our tree removal and plant health care services. Visit our website at greenvalleytreeworks.com for a full list of our services or give us a call on 860-234-4041. We look forward to hearing from you. The U.S. has been in the Arctic region of the world for over 150 years. But things are changing there, and we talked to the Center for Arctic Study and Policy and the U.S. Coast Guard to find out about the new challenges. Plus, we take a look at other stories making the headlines from around the region. This is Connecticut East This Week. Hello, I'm Brian Scott-Smith. It's at the top of the world, the Arctic Circle, and since 1867, the U.S. has been an Arctic nation after it purchased Alaska from Russia for $7.2 million back in 1866. Since then, the world and interest in the Arctic Circle has changed, not only from the several Arctic nations, but from other countries eager to exploit the region's rich mineral deposits to a growing tourism trade. Which is why the U.S. has continued to look at and amend its policies when it comes to the Arctic and its strategic importance not only to the nation but to others as well. And with Russia currently chairing the Arctic Council, relationships between the Arctic countries are being tested like never before. I caught up with Tony Russell, the executive director of the Centre for Arctic Study and Policy, which is based at the Coast Guard Academy in New London, to talk about the Arctic situation. And I also spoke to two returning Coast Guard officers who have just come back from the Arctic to get a sense of how things are there as the Coast Guard looks to increase its presence in the Arctic Circle. Tony, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Brian. Glad to be here. First question is, what is the Centre for Arctic Study and Policy? Sure. So the Center for Arctic Study and Policy here at the Coast Guard Academy is essentially an in-house think tank for the United States Coast Guard. And what we do here at the Academy is primary mission is education, where we take Arctic policies and issues and we try and incorporate them into the curriculum for the cadets, essentially shaping future leaders of the Coast Guard and trying to create some specialization with the Arctic as an emerging and unique operating region. And then also help develop knowledge for the Coast Guard itself as they develop policies and take positions on on emerging Arctic issues and topics. You have an incredible slight background. Tell us a little bit about your background pre-obviously becoming the executive director of, I believe it's called CASP is the the, the acronym that's used here. Sure. So I'm a 1996 graduate of the Coast Guard Academy, served 24 years after that, primarily as what we would call a cutterman, a seagoing officer, had a secondary specialty in public affairs, and then also developed a knack for uh, strategic analysis. My connection with the Arctic started back in 2007 when I was a Coast Guard student at the Marine Corps Command and Staff College. I chose to look at the Arctic as my thesis topic and wrote my thesis paper on that. That ended up turning into a job opportunity with our Commandant of the Coast Guard, Admiral Thad Allen, where I served as his press secretary. And one of his top priorities was kind of reinvigorating the Coast Guard's focus on the Arctic region. And so as his press secretary, I got to spend some time working on his behalf to kind of further that need and to really try and establish the idea that the United States is an Arctic nation. And that means we have 
sovereign responsibilities and rights that we need to be paying attention to up there. And uh, so for the rest of my career, I got to kind of dabble in and out of the Arctic while doing other strategic work as well. And I actually did a tour here at the Coast Guard Academy on active duty, running nautical science programs. And after I retired, after a couple of years outside the Coast Guard, I saw this opportunity. And really, I'm just motivated by the challenge of a region that is unique and dynamic and changing so fast, but then also the opportunity to really expose the cadets to it. And that's what I really get out of it is the time with the the cadets because they're going to be the ones living in this world. So to the extent that I can use whatever wisdom I've gained to uh, advance their knowledge and understanding so they can avoid some mistakes we might have made in the past, that's going to be a good thing. Why the Arctic? What got you so passionate about the Arctic? For me personally, because I was sitting in a Marine Corps classroom in 2007, 2008, that was a interesting time because the Marines were the majority of the students in that program were just coming out of their experiences in Fallujah and things like that. So counterinsurgency was, of course, a very hot topic there. And I just felt that, especially given my seat from a Coast Guard perspective, that looking at something else would be interesting. And I just happened to kind of do some initial research, discovered this area called the Arctic that I had not previously been exposed to and started to hear about these changes that were kind of new at that time and are now kind of more known. And essentially my thesis paper was on a a proposed national strategy for the Arctic region. And that kind of parlayed itself into some some unique and special opportunities that have uh, helped me grow as a strategist and it's been very interesting to watch the Coast Guard grow into that space, and we've made some progress, but we've still got a lot of progress to go. The region's actually changing faster than it was back then. The dynamics are more challenging. We've gone from an, an era that was almost purely cooperative to one where competition is starting to creep in. So our understanding of what the changes are and what they mean is it's really complex, and so it makes the work both exciting and important and difficult. Let's talk about CASP. As we said, you are the executive director of Center for Arctic Study and Policy. But we had a quick chat before we started doing this interview, and you were at pains to stress that it's an academic organization. It isn't the government, as it were, but it talks with the government. So explain to us what the purpose of that is, because people are going to be sat there thinking, okay, I think I probably understand what he's on about, but so why are they involved? You know, why is CASP involved? Yeah, it's a great question. So there are two ways to think about it. One is kind of the knowledge development, right? And so CASP being an entity within an institute of higher education uh, allows me to kind of engage in networks, academic international industry, uh, think tanks, and things like that in a way that perhaps is a little more difficult to do from other seats within the government because of that kind of academic network and that academic focus. And by doing that, we're allowed to kind of expand our aperture on the way we look at things and frankly, be able to bring in more insights, get a better understanding. And so create knowledge that can then be provided to Coast Guard sources so that they can make the best possible decisions and choices they have to make. The other part of that then is also taking that knowledge and presenting it to the cadets, right? Because for the Coast Guard, these cadets represent a a major portion of our future leaders. And this is going to be their world. The decisions we're making today, they're going to be the ones who have to kind of live with those. And the Arctic is going to continue to be a region they have to be interested in. So, for example, I'm teaching an Arctic Area Studies course right now, and I have 12 students in there. And being able to not just give them the kind of established Coast Guard positions and answers, but encourage them to look at other things, to consider other sources, to look at things from a different angle, so that 
when they're in those positions, they know that there's a lot more stakeholders involved than sometimes meet the CI and being able to kind of draw out those insights and kind of bring more people into the tent so that we make better choices and decisions in terms of the future prosperity, stability, safety, and security of the Arctic region. Are they surprised at exactly how many people are now, as you say, stakeholders or have an interest in that part of the world? Because it's very much out of sight, out of mind to many people. And then, of course, people like yourself come along who have huge experience of that region and then say, yeah, and this is what's going on right now, and this is why we should be involved. Yeah, actually, in the class today, I stayed a little late and had one student in there and just kind of asked him, how's the class going? And that was almost exactly his observation. He's like, I thought I had a good sense for what was going on, but I'm really realizing that there's just a lot more complexity and a lot more interest than there was before. And it is true. If the Arctic is a topic that is easy to find all sorts of stories on in mainstream media and stuff right now. And in fact, one of our challenges is to kind of serve as a filter to some of that, right? To kind of be sure that we're working from bases of truth and accuracy and not kind of get caught up in unintentional hyperbole and make choices that are that are based in fact and science and, and reason and not kind of the sometimes the, the noise of a moment. What can you tell us, obviously, about the Coast Guard's Arctic strategic outlook, as it were? Because, as we've said, you're not here to talk on behalf of the Coast Guard itself or, you know, the federal agencies, but you do have those conversations with them about, clearly, what is happening there, the changing dynamics, the shifts, etc. So what can you tell us about what it is that CASP is sort of looking at and, and helping to guide and shape? Well, so keeping the focus for a moment specifically on the, on the U.S. view of the Arctic, it's a particularly exciting moment, for lack of a better term. So if back in October, there was a series of national security documents that were kind of issued in sequence, starting with the national security strategy, the national defense strategy, and then a national strategy for the Arctic region, not necessarily in that order. But if you look at all three of those documents, right, which really represent kind of commander's intent, as we say in military parlance, from the president of how we're going to perceive security, and specifically in, in this case in the Arctic, all of those documents represented really pretty significant changes in the way the Arctic was talked about, both in terms of the quantity in which it was talked about, because in previous versions of the national security strategy, the Arctic was rarely mentioned, even less so in the national defense strategy. And both of those now, it's it's there in much more overt fashion. And then the national strategy for the Arctic region is technically a update to the, the previous strategy, which was 2013. And Again, there's there's really some dynamic changes going on there, and I think the term that is stands out most in those changes is competition. That didn't exist in previous versions of that document. It's there now, and uh, the reasons are kind of obvious. It's a little bit of our our relations and our our frictions with Russia and China, both worldwide, but then also specifically in that region. And uh, and what does that mean for that region? Because previously to this, the Arctic stood out. Uh, there was a term that, that kind of Arctic scholars and practitioners use as, as Arctic exceptionalism. It was a unique region of peace through the Arctic Council, which was established shortly after the Cold War and has been a model through which the Arctic nations and other entities have collectively kind of managed activities in that domain. And so this is a new challenge for the region 
And we're really trying to work together to ensure that the future of the Arctic continues to be peaceful, prosperous, and stable. But we're facing some some new dynamics that make that a little harder than it had been in the past. Two of those dynamics, I'm guessing, is one, probably the biggest dynamic, and, and you will correct me if I'm incorrect here, but probably climate change, I would think, is maybe one of the biggest dynamics there. Yeah. But also, isn't it a case of oil deposits as well that's being located? And of course, you know, we find ourselves as a world, you know, always looking for the energy, etc. Can you talk to us a little bit about those two things? Certainly, obviously, the climate thing must be huge. Yeah. So we wouldn't be having this conversation if it weren't for climate change, right? Because the entire issue is the increasing accessibility to the Arctic. What's happening with climate change is the Arctic is, is warming three to four times faster than the rest of the world. The ice cap over the Arctic Ocean is decreasing at about 12% per decade and hitting rec- record lows during the kind of the summer ice extent. That doesn't mean it's ice free and that doesn't mean it's easy to go up there, but it means it's more accessible than it was before. And so that's creating a whole lot of potential opportunities in terms of tourism, in terms of resource exploitation, in terms of transit. Those opportunities are still early, but they're certainly there. And they're creating drivers and, and incentivizing people to kind of figure out what are the opportunities up there. Oil and gas are obviously one of them. You've got significant mineral deposits up there, some of the largest in the world. And what does that mean? It's a whole new domain, unfortunately, being caused by climate change. And so that is the driver there. But then that climate change is resulting in in increased human activities. And those human activities require being kind of hopefully done in a structure of governance that ensures that while creating economic opportunity, we're also stewarding the environment and not worsening the situation. Kind of, I would argue that we pursue a first do no harm sort of approach to things. Is, is CASP or part of CASP's role a sort of like a diplomatic one in a way, you know, to talk with maybe other nations or, you know, other uh, interested parties? The Coast Guard in general has some strategic advantages because of the nature of how it's designed as simultaneously a military service, a law enforcement service, a life-saving service, a regulatory agency. That kind of mix of, of capabilities and authorities gives us access to a lot of unique partnerships and a lot of people to talk to. And that same sort of strategic advantage applies to CASP and the ability to kind of have conversations with our allies in NATO, with other international partners, with the maritime industry, with NGOs who have environmental or economic interests. We definitely are trying to get better and better at our indigenous relationships and making sure that they are part of whatever processes and decisions we may be making in the region. And so CAST mandate, one of our big mandates is establishing these partnerships. And so to essentially be continually looking for who are people out there in this space who are doing important research, important scholarship that has important implications or can guide our our decisions and our actions and make us kind of the, the best stewards of public resources and provide the best support to our constituents and our partners and allies that we can. Ultimately, is this a case of we will see the U.S. Coast Guard playing 
a bigger role in the Arctic region as it continues, you know, to evolve as situations continue to change up there, whether it's climate or whether it is other nations trying to tap into its minerals and and other things. Is is this going to be a case of the Coast Guard is going to have to increase its role? We certainly realize that presence alone is important in that space. And and the Coast Guard has been present in the U.S. Arctic um, since it became the U.S. Arctic in 1867. So that's more than 150 years. But we also recognize that with that opening Arctic Ocean and region, that there's going to be increased requirement for presence. And that can take a lot of different shapes and forms. And so, for example, activities that you see going on, you see polar security cutters being funded and, and being designed and built to replace the current icebreaker fleet. You see annually um, operations up there in the U.S. Arctic domain to essentially work with the local communities and ensure that they know that we're there and, and we're interested and concerned for their welfare economically, safety, security things of that nature. When Tropical Storm Murbach went through, the Coast Guard was, was leaned on heavily because of our relationships and our familiarity with the operating domain up there because we are up there in an increasing amount um, to help FEMA and others to kind of serve those 32 local communities who were hit by kind of an unprecedented storm, demonstration of the effects of climate change in that domain. So There's certainly going to be increased presence, but we also need to be thoughtful about how that happens. Captain Boda, we hear all the time about the situation with regards to the Arctic, the Arctic Circle, everything that's up there. How much more challenging is it becoming because it's becoming a very congested area? There are geopolitical issues playing out in the area. And of course, the Coast Guard is there to safeguard, but also as part of it is to be the force from the United States as one of the Arctic Circle countries. The Arctic is changing so quickly. We're getting so much more open water up there than I saw 20 years ago when I started this. And you're getting a lot more traffic, certainly. Russia's always been involved in the Arctic and the north northern sea routes becoming a big focus for them and bringing liquefied natural gas over to China. We continue to advance kind of our resources in the Arctic with the Red Dog Mine. We get a lot of traffic up there. I would say the one thing that's really key is as we're seeing more and more commercial traffic that's operating in the Arctic, we have to always uh, be concerned with the Alaskan natives who are using the ocean for uh, subsistence. And where they used to have ice that they could walk out on to do their hunting, that ice is receding and they have to come up with different techniques, different ways to do this hunting. So, you know, one of the big things that we need to do is really protect that way of life in the U.S. Coast Guard. And of course, you know, counter any uh, any threats that exist up there. What are some of the biggest changes that, that you've seen over that period of time? You know, it, sometimes it's hard to to think about it because you go up at different times of the year. But this past summer when we were up there, we saw open water up at 75 north um, for a few weeks. And that that is amazing. When I was an ensign going up at that same time, we'd be, we'd be really working hard to break that ice and, and get through that area. So the access to the high Arctic is really opening up. And of course, you know, you get more open water, that's going to bring them more, more traffic along. You know, I would say you're definitely seeing thinner ice. You're definitely seeing more areas of open water. But what that brings then is increased winds, increased storms. And all of those things have a big impact on the 
local population. Turning now to Lieutenant Junior Grade Emmy Siler, a recent graduate of the Coast Guard Academy here in New London. Talk to us about your deployment. My first deployment, called the Arctic West Summer 21, we circumnavigated North America, which was amazing. And then my second year is the big one where we went to the North Pole. It was truly amazing and you know, it saw the northern lights, we saw polar bears, we saw so many things, and I was on watch when we, you know, hit the North Pole, hit 90 degrees, and then we stopped. We did some science operations there, and then we put over the brow, and we had ice liberty. So we got to go down and play in the ice. People brought, like, footballs, bikes, ice skates, and hockey sticks, and it was just a wonderful day. It sounds amazing passion coming from you as you're talking about it and it's obviously still with you and it's going to be one of those things which will never leave you which is incredible to have that in a life experience but what do your family and friends think about it? My family thought it was absolutely amazing and I never imagined and my family never imagined that when I went to the Coast Guard this is the things I would be doing. I have a great crew. There's 85 of us, and it's a, it's a great team. And I'm blessed because everyone really wants to be there. This is like an adventure of the lifetime for people. So it's wonderful to be in command. We're gone from home for months at a time, you know, upwards of five months. And we also have to unplug don't have uh, connectivity to the the real world Uh, particularly when we got too far north we lose satellite coverage and we're not able to really communicate well back home so some of the things that people take for granted oh i want to watch a youtube video or i want to text my mom or whatever it is we just don't have that opportunity to do so we really depend on each other Typically, we try and be good neighbors. We try and cooperate as much as we can. But we also want to make sure people are following the rules. And that's really a key thing. If uh, the Coast Guard's not out there patrolling, we don't really have good uh, domain awareness as who is there. So if the Coast Guard is there, if we have a lifeguard on duty, if we have uh, you know, the, uh, the beat cop on duty, we'll know what's going on. And that allows us to really assert our sovereignty uh, amongst uh, you know, the territory north of Alaska. Cookies, cookies, cookies. Come and celebrate the grand opening of the Art Eastern Connecticut's new cookie factory. Discover why people can't get enough of our classic crunch chocolate chip cookies. Visit the cookie factory at 22 Route 171, Woodstock, Connecticut, and support us as we walk in partnership with people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. The Ark's classic crunch chocolate chip cookie, more than just a great cookie. Visit thearcect.com and find out more. Green Valley Tree LLC is proud to sponsor Connecticut East this week. Contact Green Valley Tree LLC for all your tree removal and plant health care needs and more. Find us at GreenValleyTreeWorks.com or call 860-234-4041. Time now for a look at other stories making the headlines this week. Local business and municipal leaders in the northeast of the state came together for a legislative breakfast recently to voice their concerns and hear what's going on in the capital that affects them and their communities. The event was organised by the Northeastern Connecticut Chamber of Commerce and topics range from healthcare services to regionalisation to affordable housing. Republican Jeff Gordon is a state senator for the 35th district and said the state needs to stop trying to mandate smaller towns in rural areas to do certain things. When it comes to affordable housing, to try to mandate our small towns to start building hundreds or thousands of affordable housing units that a lot of towns have no infrastructure 
to even support makes no sense whatsoever. It's a government mandate. In fact, I believe it's a government takeover of town's local decision making. Kathy Austin, Democratic State Senator for the 19th District, said Eastern Connecticut has different issues than the rest of the state. We just don't have the population that drives the resources, the financial resources of the state into this area. And whether it's education or municipal government aid, we have to figure out the formulas that will allow us to correctly support eastern Connecticut, which is a vital section of the state. It is the area of the state where we are growing the most businesses. Austin said the area also has to help build up the local workforce in the region to help businesses like Electric Boat and Groton as they search for 5,000 new employees in 2023 for submarine work. Other topics raised concerned maintaining healthcare services in the region with Day Kimball Hospital and looking at regionalization in these smaller towns to see how they can work with one another to share resources to help save money and provide better services to each of their local communities. Connecticut State Library System is taking part in a first-in-the-nation project to help bring libraries and their services to more people in local communities. Libraries Without Borders U.S. has joined with the Connecticut State Library to pilot the new 12-month program that will ultimately be rolled out across the country. Dawn Laval is the director of the Division of Library Development at the Connecticut State Library and says it's about engaging with more people. Help libraries in Connecticut better engage high-need, unserved or underserved communities, and especially those low-income communities, immigrant and refugee communities, and communities of color. So we're working with six libraries across the state to enhance outreach capacity, build trust, and grow habits that ultimately help connect new users to the resources available through their local public library. The six libraries in Connecticut that are part of the pilot are based in areas across the state that have traditionally been underserved. In eastern Connecticut, there are two libraries that are part of the pilot, being the Otis Library in Norwich and the Willimantic Public Library in Wyndham. Dan Paquette is the library manager of Willimantic Public Library and says one of the ways they will get out to their community is by using their book bike. So that allow us to reach different places or bring more materials than we would have if we had to carry it in a crate or something like that. Sometimes bring books to just give away or sometimes we'll bring out books that are library books that we'll check out. We'll be able to bring a laptop with us and sign people up for library cards, help them learn how to use databases, show them our online resources, those kinds of things. We're really excited to bring a wide variety of what the library offers, but on a smaller scale to wherever people are hanging out. The program will allow for pop-up and satellite libraries in locations like grocery stores or laundromats where people will be able to learn about the library's services that are available to them and break down barriers to resources and provide skills training. The 43rd Prison Arts Program annual show has opened at the Art Gallery at Eastern Connecticut State University, giving visitors a glimpse into the lives of those currently serving in Connecticut's prison system and those who were previously incarcerated there. Jeffrey Green is the Prison Arts Program Manager and says people will be surprised with the range of art on display from the materials used to create it to the level of expertise and skill. That could be soap or the, the stripping and waxing pad from the floor or non-dairy creamer is a is a incredible media to use there are masters but then there are people that you know their technical ability is a long way from coming together and what you'll see is you'll see real work 
And Green says the various art pieces on show evoke a range of emotions, not only from the artists, but in the visitors who will see them. You'll see work that is beautiful and kind and thoughtful. You'll also see some work that's frightening, that's difficult to look at, and that this isn't a, an exhibition of beautiful flowers to try to convince you to care about people in prison. It's to give you a substantial window into the prison as well. The Prison Art Programme is the longest-running programme of the criminal justice non-profit Community Partners in Action and began back in 1978 to help constructively change the lives of those who are incarcerated and the prison system itself. The exhibition runs until April 22nd. Details can be found at easternct.edu forward slash art dash gallery. And the Connecticut Department of Transportation is reminding transit users that bus fares return on April 1st for all buses and paratransit in Connecticut. Fares have been suspended on all public transit buses in the state since April 1st, 2022, as a result of a state law Governor Lamont signed last year. However, federal restrictions prevent the state from extending this suspension for any longer than 12 months. Customers are encouraged to purchase tickets ahead of time to avoid lines at customer service centres and at fare boxes when boarding buses. City transit tickets and passes can be purchased at retail locations in the state, online or through the mail. For all fare options, including monthly and 10-day passes, you can visit ctransit.com. And for those using other local transit operators, you're advised to visit those operators' websites for local fare information. And for trip planning help, commuting information and live customer service, visit ctrides.com for further details. That's all from us for this edition. Do send us your questions and story ideas to the show via our website at Connecticut-East.com or Facebook or Twitter at Connecticut East and on Instagram at Connecticut East this week. And you can listen to the show again on our social platforms on demand and by asking your smart speaker to play Connecticut East this week podcast. And please like, follow and share on your social media too. I'm Brian Scott Smith. Thank you for listening. (laughs) 